It's knuckle puck time. Funny how? Like a clown, I amuse you? How am I funny? But what about the R-O-U-S? The rodents of unusual size, I don't think they exist. <laughs> Welcome to the Brackish Podcast. We are your hosts, Knock, Cliff, Lynn. Two of us love Dewey Lipa and uh, the other one, Lynn, we're just wondering if she does too. So uh, yeah. we're obsessed with her. Are you? I mean, if I would have known that anyone was going to say anything, then I would, yes. You Ooh. are. Who's yeah. not at this point? Right. The woman is making fantastic music. Oh, wonderful. Bring me back. It brings you back to like what? Like just it, like she's bringing back 80s music, like uh -huh. that kind of beat. Uh -huh. Like I'm think she has a song called Physical. I don't know if she like did it to pay homage to Olivia Newton-John. That's what I think. You have to. You can't make a physical song anymore. That's very true. It's kind of, I think it's the same. I don't know if Olivia's was the same title, but let's get physical, yeah. right? Okay. Well, who cares? Even the word <laughs> "physical" in the song makes me think. Yeah, I don't uh, think. Is there any other song named "physical" besides those two? Hmm. No. Someone check it out. Check it back. Check us. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, if you had your, you know, celebrity man singer crush or lady crush singer, who would it be? Ah. Uh. I mean, Childish Gambino is kind of yeah, maybe my one and only. So you're uh, his name when it's on Twitter, Don Glover. Yeah. It looks like Dong Lover. <laughs> I never thought of that. It looks like Dong Lover. Dong Lover. Yeah, oh. Dong Lover. Uh, maybe you did it like that. I stole that joke from him. He said in the stand. Oh, okay, I was gonna so, say. Yeah, so, I was say he's yeah. a comedian. He probably yeah. Okay. Yes. So he he said he had to. Uh, Stop doing that. Uh, but we're going to bring you some <laughs> stories today, not about Childish Gambino, or uh, I don't even know how to say her name sometimes, uh, Dua Lipa. We're going to bring you some stories about the wonderful place that is Metri, Louisiana. I was born there, Lakeside Hospital, like many oh. of the people from Metri. Uh, but even so, I still had a tough time finding a story that I felt was worthy of the Brackish Podcast. How did it go for y'all? Um, Mr. Roots and Bulb told me a little nugget of a story and I was able to kind of follow it. Nice. Yeah. Very and as good. actually, as I was walking out of the door this evening, he was like, oh wait, what about this and this and this? And I was like, no, I can't hear you anymore. Cause uh -huh. he just had, he threw so much at me. He overloaded you? He <laughs> did. Oh, there's a lot of pressure. I know. You know, the the podcast has added to the pressure of what we say and do, really. It is. I mean, it, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, Cliff can't even sleep at night sometimes. He overthinks. He's so excited. He'll so message excited. us at two in the morning. Uh, I haven't slept in a week. Yeah. Yeah. Week. I believe that this is going to be the time where we play the part you've been wanting to play for days since the insurrection. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're talking about the erection. Yeah. There will be a trial, and when that trial ends, senators will have to decide if they believe Donald John, Donald John Trump incited the erection. <laughs> that was Chucky Schumer on the House floor. Yeah, he's in the House. Yeah, there's so uh, much has happened between. And so much. Yeah. And oh. so, I mean, 
If you if you didn't hear what he said, he said the erection. Yeah, okay. and that's the. Oh, the, the, we, that's the. <laughs> oh, I'm oh, sorry. Sorry. The erection. Yeah. So that uh, <laughs> the best part is that uh, it was Chuck, because if it was anyone else, it kind of would have been like, "Ha, ah, that's funny," and died. But the fact that like he was always on there, just dot. Trump, the President Trump, did every time on the House floor, just talking about the erection. Uh, <laughs> it's going to stay on for a long time. That's great. I think it's appropriate for, yeah. of all presidents, Trump to have that included <laughs> in his list of egregious errors. <laughs> the erection. But who incited it? That Ooh. is the major question. He said, no, he said Trump incited the erection. Whose? The crowds, the obviously. I think Chuck got a little chubby off of that. Not Mitch McConnell. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh. So there were actually some people from Louisiana who got into a little bit of trouble because they attended Ooh, this I insurrection. I know. I told my uncle, don't go. Oh. I told him, I was like, that's just you asking for trouble. And, <laughs> but, you know. No, there were two grocery store chain, like, family members, founders who who posted pictures while they were there. And then at least one of them came out, what, two weeks later and said, I didn't know that's what it was. Right. Yeah. So for two weeks, people from New Orleans pretended they didn't shop at these two stores. Yes. yes. And then <laughs> that's when you remember to take your reusable bags out the trunk of your car. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can't let anybody know I went here. And now I don't think anybody cares anymore. Like, no. I need my good wine at $5 prices. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know? Uh, it was just a weird situation because I listened to the radio and they said 27% of people at that insurrection were business owners. And when they usually have like riots and mobs like that, they don't even have a section for business owners. Wow. And yeah, it's not even like a thing. Hmm. But almost 30% of the people that were out there were actual people who are... The Better Business Bureau. Yeah. <laughs> We've got some sort of ridiculous stories for you tonight. Uh, the one I have is relatively quick. Uh, we don't even know what order we're going to go in. Uh, no, I'm, mine's quick too. My, I mean, mine's actually soft. Yours has a map. Yeah, well, it's just to give you and Lynn some sort of perspective of, you know, what was and what is now. Okay. Well, let's start with that. Yeah, you went engineered. I don't know. Maybe. I do want to apologize to Cliff today uh, because of his microphone issues last week. Uh, that was totally yeah, 100% sabotage. Me. No, it's fine. Is that yeah. why I was excluded this week from so much like critical information? Yeah, I was just, Were you seeking revenge? Yeah, I just sent him hate mail. <laughs> like real mail. I wrote letters to him in the mail. No emails, no texts. I'm like, I'm going to write this and he's going to get it in a couple days. He's going to get <laughs> and, and I got it. Go. And I got it, and I threw it right in the trash. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my story is about Bayou Metairie. And uh, for anyone that doesn't know, it pretty much ran along Metairie Road. Ooh. All the way to City Park into Bayou St. John. Okay. They used to connect. Well, there's still a part of 
Yeah. To buy you in City Park, right? Jeez, spoiler. No, it's fine. No, that, yeah, so 2,600 years ago, Bayou Metairie originated uh, back when the Mississippi shifted eastward. So there's a channel that got created off of the Mississippi River. That channel created Bayou St. John, which, which drained into Lake Pontchartrain, and also it created uh, Bayou Metairie, and then eventually drained into, like I said, Bayou Sauvage and then Bayou Gentilly. Bayou Metairie had narrow elevated banks, which indigenous people way back when used as roads to travel. And the land was very fertile and which basically for the indigenous people created gardens, dairies, orchards, farms, and thus coined the name from the French called Chemin de la Metairie, which means Metairie path for that road. So over the years, basically the people called that bridge Metairie Road when they were traveling along the bayou. Now, the even the one that's still there today? The road, yeah, there's paved road on there now, yeah. Okay. So even though Bayou Metairie and Metairie Road were very remote from New Orleans, uh, they were very accessible and they invited secretive activities. Mm. Smugglers traveled it to evade authorities and runaway slaves used it as an outlet to flee. And the section of the bayou nearest New Orleans, which is close to City Park, became a dueling ground, remembered today by City Park's famed Dueling Oaks. Ah, oh, so. Oh, ah, yeah. hooray for Pepe. Hooray for Pepe. <laughs> so you have 1700s, 1800s, cabins start lining up, farms start lining up because of the fertile land. And one of the descriptions came from Louisiana's last French administrator, Pierre Clement de Lossat, writing in, he wrote this in 1831, but he recalled an 1803 horseback ride along Metairie Road in the near present day Lakewood neighborhood. He said, the day was delightful, the sky serene, and the breeze cooled off the heat of the sun. Trees were still thick with foliage, he wrote of what is now the cemeteries, and among them evergreens, magnolias, vines, oaks, wild grapes, shrubs, and heavily laden with fruit. Now it's just a traffic jam and cemeteries. Mm -hmm. Yes. Doesn't that look peaceful and delightful? And <laughs> yes. Uh, he also wrote, sprinkled here, there are log cabins, some cultivation, and curious birds. And whoever had a horse carriage was on Metairie Road, strollers dressed in their Sunday finery, young folks each other, well, Young folks challenge each other to uh, a lacrosse-like game. So basically kids were playing games around that place. And the road was full of unbroken line of traveling coaches, cabriolets, horses, carts, spectators, and like I said, kids playing around. So that's what it looked like way back in the day when there was no paved road. It was just dirt road and everybody was enjoying themselves. Nice. How wide was this by you? It's very narrow. Okay. If you look at this map here, yeah. For everyone listening, I brought some maps because that's what I do. Yes. I bring visuals. He's a mapper. So. So you're, the, the origin of Metairie is in within this bayou. Without this bayou, this yeah. bayou is how Metairie got to be pretty much. Correct. What does Metairie mean? Uh, I, I just looked it up. An area of land held under the Metayich system, which is a system 
of sharecropping farms oh, there you go. owned by Jesuits. Oh, yeah. They're still hanging around, too. Yeah, still there. So, 1700. The river mostly ceased, and the bayou basically had to get its water from other sources. So, when Bayou St. John got backed up from the lake, that would back up into Bayou Metairie. So it wasn't always saturated. So it could have been dry at some point. And then when there's storms coming in, it would get water again. Um, but a lot of the Bayou Metairie I read about, it mostly comes from the maps. So that's why I brought maps. And you can look this up online. You'll see in this 1834 map, if you go online, it's a Charles Zimple map. In 1834, it actually shows Bayou Metairie. It's very small print, I know. We need like a big, uh, bigger. But uh, Thomas Hardy's topographical map of 1884 depicted Bayou Metairie in the same place, um, but it's almost obsolete. It says Metairie Road on it now. So that was 40 to 50 years. It went from Bayou Metairie on a map to just Metairie Road. So the bayou drying out didn't stress people out. It was an opportunity. Yeah, of okay. course. So by the early 1900s, Bayou Metairie was reduced to lagoons um, used for stormwater storage and Metairie Cemetery and City Park. Y'all, this ran right by my house. Uh-huh. I know. It's crazy. Huh. So now the last part is called the demise of Bayou Metairie. Mm. <laughs> One part, urban expansion. Yeah, okay. The Metairie Gentilly Ridge offered all three advantages, attracted parks, racetracks, fairgrounds, nurseries, cemeteries, campuses. Um, one spot hosted two uses. There's a Metairie race course, which is now Metairie Cemetery. And it, the oval, it's still the oval shape. Real estate interests, obviously, if you look at the maps, lots of land, 1834. If you look at the 1874, there's still a lot of land away from Metairie Road. When you get closer, you can see it's been subdivided into a bunch of small different things. So when they say New Orleans has old money and old Metairie money, that's a lot of the families that made a lot of money back in the day selling off their land. So this winding corridor became popular for auto automobiles in the early 1900s. Uh, in the automobile trade magazine, it says, the road for miles winds like a serpent among avenues of magnolia, oaks, and cedars, while beyond the fences on either side are truck farms galore with splendid crops and orange trees. Bayou Metairie creeps along in a perfect outline between fringes of cedars, water oaks, and cane. So you can still see they still had, they had a travelable, a navigable road. It wasn't paved yet and you could still see the Metairie. So it's probably like just this dried up canal that had a bunch of trees and looked nice, a nice little feature. So eventually, Metairie Road becomes packed with cars, like I said, making this more like a modern suburb. And in the early 1920s, sprung up cabarets and Ooh. gambling clubs. And they opened up for the same remote but accessible reason. So if you wanted to come to New Orleans, but go meet with hookers and gamble, you went away from the city so no one knew 
You know, you didn't want to. If you didn't want people. That, that wasn't the probably yeah, that was so probably that used sense. for that too. Yeah. yeah. It's got out of the city underground clubs. Yeah. 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 Sam yeah. Silva Dollar probably running a show in huh? Yeah. Hey. 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 Little Matranga action. Hey. <laughs> Not that the city cared about prohibition. Yeah. No. So obviously, if you're in a rural area and gambling clubs and cabarets spring up and you're a resident out there, you're going to say, whoa, we mm -hmm. don't want this crap here. So the resident said, we don't want it. They petitioned to the state to shut down these gambling halls in 1927 and incorporate the community Metairie as a village and later a city named Metairie Ridge. But that didn't last long. It only lasted a year. The Louisiana Supreme Court withdrew municipal status and Metairie has been incorporated ever since, unincorporated ever since. And I think it's due to a lot of greasy politicians they were so angry that they couldn't party with hookers anymore and gamble that they were like, no, we need this to be unincorporated so we can stay over there. We can, I don't like my wife. Off my, the books. Yeah. So there's reports from Jefferson Parish uh, in the 1940s that say this once scenic waterway had become a nuisance and an obstacle and its channel would be, at that point, would be filled. And with the increase in population and the need for traffic and drainage, this pretty much killed Bayou Metairie. And some of those ditches can be seen today. The remnants of it, they're along Airline Drive. Uh, you also have the gardens of the Metairie Cemetery. Uh, and on certain streets, such as Wood Avenue along Metairie Road, some of the sections were still flourishing around in Orleans Parish, which was City Park. City Park. The one in Orleans stayed. This guy, Mayor Chet Morrison, there was a, there was still a lake called Horseshoe Lake in Metairie Cemetery. And the Mayor Chet Morrison in a street improvement program said, I don't like it. We got too much bottleneck in traffic. So in 1953, Metairie Road went from two lanes to four lanes, right along like Metairie Country Club mm -hmm. and all that. So literally, Bayou Metairie is buried at Metairie, or close to Metairie Cemetery, which is crazy. So like Lynn said, the lagoons of Lower City Park are there today. And what's crazy about that is that we lived in Mid-City for five years, walked my dog around those ponds, and I had no idea that was Bayou Metairie, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. So in City Park, if you go today, you can still see yeah, uh, the train ride goes right by it. They have, the, if you do Celebration the Oaks, uh, all the light up stuff in, in the lagoons and everything, it's right adjacent to City Park Avenue, just we north of it. We kayaked through Bayou Metairie the other day. Completely accidentally photobombed this really elaborate proposal. This guy had people oh, show up yes. and they were all like socially distant, spaced out. And we're going through and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, he's proposing, we have to stop. But the boat wouldn't stop. Hopefully they have a professional photographer because there's me like trying not to be in the picture with the image. Was... He can Photoshop you out. Okay. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. So that was a story, uh, I took it from Richard Campanella. I'm glad you went first because it really is the origin of the place we're talking about pretty much. How I mean, I, I didn't want to go first, but I something told me to go first. Yeah. <laughs> His name was Knock and he said it deliberately. 
We have a sponsor. Oh, what? You tired? Are you struggling to find focus? Yeah. Achy joints? Oof. Grind is a revolutionary, great tasting formula that pushes you to your max potential. Grind helps focus you and gives you clarity while helping preserve your joints. Most pre-workout and energy drinks contain additives like creatine, which can bulk you up and add water weight. Grind doesn't believe in fluff. So it's like a energy powder, sort, but it doesn't have all the extra fluff with it. And it okay. keeps you going throughout your day. It's a get you right. It's a get you right. Okay. So good sponsor for us. If you want to know more, they got a Facebook page. They got a website, hitthegrind.com. Um, so it's cool. We're good friends with them. Uh, so we're just, it's people helping people out. And we don't see know? anything wrong with a little powder. I don't see anything wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, just a little bit of powder. Oh, just a little bit. A <laughs> little bit of powder Ooh. and grind. Have any of you, or any listeners out there, have you seen Bridgerton on Netflix? Yes. No. The whole thing. Not the whole thing, but I've seen enough to where I'm like, Have okay, you seen the straight, like, newlywed, all sex, sex episode? Yeah. Yeah. The, the whole episode. Yes. So, <sighs> Lynn, dang it. Well, that's okay. I'm not going to. Do you know who, do you know who Terry Bradshaw is? Yes. Do you know who Terry Crews is? Yes. Okay. Wait, are they both in this show? No. no. <laughs> like, what so, kind of show is this? So, Netflix live in the no. previews. Mrs. Cliff and I were watching this and just, just newlyweds, they're having sex all over the house. Mm -hmm. Outside in the rain, whatever. Right. And so at one point they're in the bed and they're fixing to go at it again or whatever. And <clears throat> He gets up from the bed. I thought at this point they were both naked. They're not. He's only got pants on. She's in the bed in some sort of like in the sheets in some sort of beach pose, you know, like laying, looking at him because that's exactly yeah. what happens in real life. Correct. Sure. Somebody's just waiting for you to yeah, <laughs> take yeah. your pants off. So he's up there like fixing to like, here comes the goods, right? Right. <laughs> and Miss Cliff says, oh, I wonder if he's going to shake his titties like Terry Bradshaw. <laughs> And I, I paused the show and I looked at her and I was like, what are you talking about? And she goes, oh, not Terry. Uh, what's the guy with the, the tent? And I was like, Terry Crews? And she's like, yes, Terry. I think Terry Bradshaw can do this. I'm sure he can. Yeah. But and then I just had. What is sensual? Yeah, I just yeah, had this picture yeah. of or this movement of Terry Bradshaw shaking his titties. So if you've never seen a nutria, it is literally a rodent of unusual size. They come from South America. They're water-loving rodents that grow to be about two feet long, about 20 pounds heavy, and they've got this foot and a half long, skinny, sparsely furred, nasty looking tail. Just imagine a beaver and a French Quarter rat had a baby. Gross. They have these really bright orange buck teeth and that's due to a lot of mineral deposits they've got in their teeth because they can chew through so much. They've actually evolved to have these heavy iron deposits in their front chompers. So those teeth are darn near indestructible. 
Uh, they also kind of pop out ready to go. They're born with all their fur, their eyes are open, they're chomping on lilies and such within hours of being born. And they can start having their own litters of puppies by eight or nine months old. You know, down in South America, if you're in the Amazon, you've got a, a plethora of vegetation and you also have natural predators there. Here, they don't have as many natural predators and our vegetation doesn't grow in the same way. So these guys, if they're having litters by eight or nine months old, they have two litters a year, anywhere between two and nine pups. And they're usually pregnant by the end of the year again. They become an invasive species really, really fast. I blame the parents. You well, got to. <laughs> <laughs> there is there is actually someone who gladly took the blame for them ending up in Louisiana, and that was the son of Edmund McElhaney, the hot sauce guy, Tabasco. Oh, yeah. His okay. son followed in his footsteps. He was a businessman. He was a biologist, a botanist. He also happened to be a folklorist. So the son of the Tabasco guy would tell a lot of tall tales about himself, including this tale that he was the one that introduced the Nutria to Louisiana. And he would tell this back in the heyday of fur trade. One of the reasons the French even came here in the first place is because the French used to love them some furs. The Cajuns up in Nova Scotia were there for the fur trade and there were a lot of wars and laws fought over fur. Down here, they were hunting things like raccoon and muskrat and things like that. So McElhaney tells this story about how he brought Nutria in to help invigorate the fur trade. Cause look, these guys have a lot of pups a year. Their fur is quality. I'm breeding them to have really great stock. This is a great idea. And his story goes that he bought some, a hurricane came through Louisiana in 1940 and broke some of the fences. So Nutria got into the bayous that way. And back in the 40s, that was seen as a good thing because they hadn't taken over yet. By the 80s or 90s, that was not the case. It's, uh, it's given him such a bad reputation that his trust actually sifted through his old documents and letters to prove that he wasn't responsible for it. This guy flaunted that he brought them here. Right. And then subsequently, is that the right word? Tried to prove his innocence that he didn't? No, he died. No, his people did. His people did. So after he died. Oh, so the family was getting crapped on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh. Yeah. Well, too bad. <laughs> Listen, let me give you some quotes that other people have said about Nutria so you understand why his trust would really want to go, oh, wait, it wasn't him. Nutria have been described as a cross between a hippopotamus and a cockroach. It has the face of a seal, the teeth of a rat, and the appetite of a German housewife. It smells like it's three days dead, swims like a porpoise, and sounds like a tire going flat when it, it issues its mating call. The young eat anything that grows. And that was from uh, Henry Holman, who is a folklorist from Texas. So they're just the, the worst thing ever. They're just the worst. Yeah. How do you, I mean, if you even want to use it for fur, I mean, how do you get that stank out? Tanning. Think about yeah. what a cow smells like. Oh, that's Leather true. doesn't yeah. really, it's, it still smells animal-like, but it doesn't smell like a cow in a pasture. Yeah. Yeah, I have a lot of tanning practices and stuff. I don't believe when it. When you make it sound that simple, you make right. us feel like idiots. <laughs> yeah. Well, I researched it, so Stupid I know. Stupid questions. 
Another thing to think about when we think about why people hate them so much is that really less than 100 years ago, there were no nutria. And according to a USA Today article in 1960, there were an estimated 20 million roaming in Louisiana. Oh, Lord. wow. Right. So it really got out of hand. From zero to 20 and 60? Wow. Yeah. Uh, so that, like I said, had to, McElhaney took a lot of the credit for it at first, but mm -hmm. to pass the blame around his trust uncovered this kind of timeline that the director of the Department of Fur Conservation's Fur and Wildlife Division got in touch with McElhaney in 1930. What? I know. The Fur and Wildlife Division. It is the Department of Fur Conservation's it, Fur and Wildlife is Division. Is this still a thing? Probably. Ever. Old yeah. nun guessers in charge of it, boo. No, that's yeah. true. Yeah. I'm sure the alligator skins are right under that right. department, right? So he, uh, this director got in touch. He sent a letter to McElhaney asking his advice because McElhaney was a known biologist and botanist. And McElhaney basically said, I don't know, sounds like a good idea, but maybe keep them in a pen until you figure out what to do with them. Uh, eight years later, which goes against his kind of folktale retelling, he purchased his first set of nutria from two nutria farms in Louisiana. One was in St. Bernard Parish, that's where he got the bulk of them. And the other one was from a husband and wife, the Brontes from Abita Springs. And in 1933, she wrote a letter to McElhaney saying, yeah, we had a farm and they were easy to raise, like easy to raise, <laughs> but we couldn't find a market for them. So we just let them go. Oh. So there were definitely people in Louisiana who not only raised, but released a lot of nutria before McElhaney could claim it properly. Um, so he had his in 1938, in 1940, about two months before his fabled hurricane came through, he wrote that he released some three quarters grown nutria into the bayous to see how they would do. Then this hurricane comes through, fences break, animals burrow when they're scared. So more definitely escape, though we don't have proof of it. He wrote about complaining about his muskrat farms and this and that, but never mentioned the nutria in the hurricane. Uh, you go from him having somewhere around a thousand nutria from 20 to a thousand in two years. That's disgusting. It's That's just disgusting. wild. Just the story of how he had to evolve his farm could have been a whole episode. Mm, wow. But, I mean, I didn't make him have sex. You know, I, I wasn't responsible for all these. <laughs> I was responsible for 20. I'm not responsible for a thousand. A thousand. <laughs> but uh, by 19, the hunting season of 1946-47, uh, hunters paid severance taxes at 10 cents a tail on 36,030 tails. See, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say, if you had that many, instead of releasing them, Get some hunters to come in and like, look, I'll give you this much to pop these things off. Well, that's what he ended up doing yeah. at first. Once it hit the thousand mark and they were starting to take over his property, he had trappers come in to catch what he was calling the wild nutria. And then by, you know, from when he started in 38 to 46, trappers were paying taxes on 36,000. So who knows how many Cajun people just caught and ate. Though, look, let me tell you, Ugh. people don't eat Nutria here. They tried, they tried in the 40s, they tried in the 60s, they tried in the 90s. No one down here wants to eat a rat and tell people about it. Yeah.
But I'm just saying, there was definitely some illegal hunting. There were some people doing their own trapping. So that 36,000 number isn't really an accurate estimate of how many were actually caught. By 2002, the problem was so bad that the state started to pay everyday people to catch these nutria, paying five, and they just recently increased it to $6 a tail. That was a Duck Dicey famous episode. Yeah. They were going around, They he pulled off the side of the road and just picked up a tail, and it was like, that's money on the side of the road. Oh, God. <laughs> I believe that. Yes, you know, some yeah. producer had to go find it and lay it on the side of the road and get them to drive uh, by. Oh, no, huh? <laughs> <laughs> So in 2003, uh, Louisiana and Maryland jointly uh, created a, a federal program called the Nutria Eradication and Control Act. And their goal was to catch in Louisiana at least 400,000 nutria and pay people for it. There's only one year they hit that goal. It was 2009, 2010. But every other year, they just couldn't generate enough interest for people to do this on their own and earn money. They said that the most advantageous hunter handed in 11,000 tails, which is a lot of money by itself. Dang, that's 66 Gs. Right, right. Good so it was a really big problem, especially in Jefferson Parish, where Metairie is. Jefferson Parish is a really long, narrow parish that follows a lot of waterways. It's got bayous, it's got lakes, it's got the poncha train and all of that stuff. So nutria were coming in and eroding the ground out from under people's houses. Uh, by 1995, the Jefferson Parish City Council was looking at about $6 million worth of damage. We're talking about rodents that will destroy about 900 acres of land a year, and that's almost non-recoverable land. So they were really under the gun to try to save people's houses, to eliminate these costs and whatnot. And the council floundered a lot because as much as they had solutions, they didn't sit well with people. They were suggesting things like putting little, little nooses underwater and basically catching them, hang, hanging them underwater and drowning them that way or floating rafts of rat poison laced sweet potatoes out into the middle of the drainage canals that would run through metairie and such. So the nutria would eat that and, and die from the rat poison. And the whole idea behind the rat poison is pets wouldn't die from it. But still, how many people want to wake up and see a 20 pound rat and all its litter floating in oh, the body? Oh, sight to see. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. So they were really at their wits end because nothing sat well with the people. PETA caused some problems and things like that. And they were starting to run out of both funding and to escalate costs and whatnot. And that is when the Nutria met its match. Sheriff Harry Lee. Oh, you heard that bump? There you go, yeah. That's, that's, that's how we can tell. <laughs> yeah, this is the guy that I told you might be one of Satan's best bros right there. Yeah. He offered a solution. Uh, he offered the parish council to just let his SWAT team use these nutria as target practice. Let them go out twice a week. They'll either shoot them in the field, they'll wrangle them up, just let me, let me shoot them. Where they're at, uh, it's especially challenging to uh, shoot them when they're moving, uh, different sizes. Uh, sometimes you have just basically uh, the head to aim at, sometimes it's a full body shot. And this was not unusual 
for Sheriff Harry Lee. This is very true. Um, one of my favorite comedians, Dave Attell, he had a show on Comedy Central in the early 2000s called Insomniac, where you mm -hmm. go do a live show and then after one or two in the morning, go do nightlife. And one of the, and I, now I want to watch it again because you brought it up. One of the episodes, he does a show in New Orleans, goes out, does night, and then he gets with the JP officers and rides in the back of a truck along, I don't know if it's uh, West Esplanade or West Metro, whatever, whatever the canal is. And they're literally out the back of the truck with shotguns, oh spotlights on the canal, just waiting to pop Nutria. Uh, from 1995 to now, they're still doing it, but it's so effective. They only have to go out once a week instead of twice a week. I, I never see Nutria. Yeah, I see possums for days, but I don't see Nutria anymore. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. No, I don't know the last time I've seen a Nutria in the city. Mm -mm. It's because they all capped off. Yeah, between right. Midnight <laughs> and five. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it worked. Not everyone was happy with it, but I found a quote from um, a Miss Poche who was interviewed in a different article by the New York Times. Apparently they were very interested in this whole Nutria business in the 90s. She said that she didn't want to appear insensitive and that if Nutria were not such a serious problem for the country, much less the parish, they'd probably leave them alone. But quote, they are not canine. They are not feline. They are rodents. I think that <laughs> sums it up right there. That, don't feel bad for a rat. No. And nobody's going to feel bad for a rat, a mouse. No, nobody. I mean, you, if you come face to face with a freaking orange teeth little thing. Kicking mm. in. They are really sweet. And they chirp to each other. Oh, really? no, yeah. no, 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 yeah. no. They, um, they come out at dusk and dawn mostly. They don't even like coming. I mean, they're active at night, but they, they're kind of homebodies. They don't go very far. They usually don't go more than 200 yards away from their house. Y'all, I know so much more about Nutria than I need to know now. Oh. I, I rabbit hole. I think it wouldn't be a problem, but the fact that they started undermining people's homes, that's not, mm -hmm. that's not good. Well, and now they're everywhere. They're in Oregon causing almost as much problem. They're starting to cause the same problems as here. California has a huge problem with Who them. Who took them from here? That's the question. They take themselves. I read somewhere that in the 40s, one was caught, I think, in Minnesota. Mm. What was Tabasco Boy's name? E.A. McElhaney. Yeah, he for sure put some nutrient in those boxes when he was shipping them out across the country. <laughs> the Tabasco. Oh, yeah. 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 He's like, we gonna put some of these, mama. That wasn't my fault. All right, so I'll get started with mine, and it is how Metairie is linked to the famous Joshua tree out in California. Okay. You right. too? Yeah. Oh. Uh, 
Yeah, I think there's only one Joshua Tree, right? He's not. Bono? Like, he doesn't have a twin, right? Yeah. <laughs> Justin Tree over. <laughs> Whatever. All right. So um, it has to do with the mysterious burial of Graham Parsons. And Graham Parsons is a famous rock musician from the 1960s and 70s. He played with the Birds, the Shilohs, uh, and you know, he played a little bit with his nose too. So no. you can imagine uh, at a young age, he rode the white pony. Graham Parsons, he was in Joshua Tree at the time, this is, you know, city too. So uh, he died at the age of 26, overdosed uh, at the Joshua Tree. His family, his mother and his stepfather, they lived here in Metairie or New Orleans, right? And they had a big old plot of land for them in the Garden of Memories on Airline Highway. So they were going to ship Graham Parsons' body from California to Louisiana. But before they could ship his body, someone stole the hearse with his coffin and body in it. Whoa. So for days and weeks... No one knew where Graham Parsons' body was. Wow. About two weeks later, a couple who's in the California State Park, where the Joshua Tree is, sees a weird-looking log that's burning. Mm-mm. So the, you know, the rangers or park wherever go down there, and they check it out, and they see, yo, that's a coffin Okay, there's some remains in there. Someone has burned this body. So no one knew for a few days what happened to Graham Parsons' body, right? They thought it was like ritualistic. His fans, they were trying to burn him by the Joshua tree. Oh, so they knew it was him. They knew it was him. They just him. didn't know what happened. Okay. Yeah, they knew it was Graham Parsons' body. They just didn't know what happened. And so... Uh, for a few days, uh, you know, people are writing about it, people are talking about it, and finally, uh, someone calls the Rolling Stones magazine and tips them off about what happened. And they said, someone who loved Graham did this. And so they're like, okay, now do tell. That's not scary at all. That's not scary at all. So Graham, while he was at the Joshua Tree with two of his buddies, he confided in them that, you know what, man? This is where I want to be when I die. If I die, I want you to cremate me, and I want you to put me by the Joshua tree. So, two weeks later, after he says that to his friends, he literally dies. He dies of the overdose. He couldn't change his will, right? And his parents really have control of the body, and that's why they're going to ship it back. They drove to the airport, and they convinced the people at the airport that they're gonna take this body. They dressed up like limo drivers, faked it, and said, oh, we gotta take this back. That didn't work. Then the guy who's tipping off the Rolling Stone says, they then said, okay, man, this girl said she would have sex with us if we brought back Graham Parsons' body. So you gotta <laughs> help us out, bro. And the guy who wasn't gonna give him the body, right, because they were limo drivers or fake limo drivers, finally said, Okay, you can have a body. Well, I mean, they told the truth, <laughs> Yeah, right? they told the truth, right? So, as these two friends were doing their due diligence, 
to honor the last will and testament of their friend. There was no woman involved, right? There's no woman okay, involved. Just to be clear. There's no one. They were not going to have sex with a woman mm -hmm. while the body of Graham Parsons watched. Okay. It was not going to happen. So they drove back to Joshua Tree. I'm sorry, just in a hearst. Weekend at Bernie's. Yeah. Just <laughs> in a hearst with the coffin. Okay. They propped it up. And they had some lighter fluid, and they just started burning it. Burning the casket with their buddy's remains inside of it. Ole. You know, but as any good plan, you know, it went awry. When someone else started driving up the road to the Joshua Tree, they freaked out, and they kicked his coffin down <laughs> this cliff, to the bottom of the cliff, where his body was then discovered. Burning and rolling. <laughs> Burning and rolling down the cliff. Oh my God. 40% of Graham Parsons' body was gone. Oh. It was deteriorated. The other 60% of his body was then shipped to Metairie in the Garden of Memories where it lays today. He was uh, Rolling Stones in the Rolling Stones top 100 artists of all time. So not only is his body here in Metairie, but part of his remain will always be near the Joshua Tree because of his two friends that wanted to honor him. So they still did it. Yeah, they did it. They did it. It's like sprinkling some of the ashes and you leave the rest in the urn. Right. Yeah, it's it a good. Is. What if his his legs are always walking in the Joshua Tree, but his body's just in the middle? You know, his body would much rather be in New Orleans. Yeah, right? what, what like, if, I just want to get the tipitinos. <laughs> no. Yes. Metairie's, I, when I was researching, Metairie's known for its cemeteries. Yeah. The amount of cemeteries that they have. Uh, I had no idea. Uh, but yeah, that is the story of Graham Parsons. And how his body came to be. That is wild. You know, he never he was he know he was born in Georgia, never even lived here. Uh, his oh. parents just lived here, and that's where they wanted him oh, to Oh, then he definitely wouldn't want to stay in Metairie. Are you correct, kidding me? Yeah. No. I'm sure Graham Parsons wished his friends were completely successful. I'm sure if they would have just waited for that car to come up the road, they'd have just been like, Yeah, yeah, we just it? it's just our it's just I'm our buddy. I'm sure they were on some serious <laughs> yeah, peyote at Nose the time. candy. Yes. So we've told you some stories tonight, how Metairie got to be Metairie, how Metairie got to get rid of some dirty-ass rats. And, and uh, oh, We talked about Graham. We talk, oh, yeah, we talked about Graham Parsons and how his buddies tried to burn his body and spread his ashes in the Joshua you know what, Tree, but you, they couldn't. I got, some, I got a stupid joke. What's that? Do you know what Graham's buddies called themselves? Graham's Crackers. <laughs> <laughs> And that's how it originated. They actually took that, burned his body, was he the and then created graham crackers. He was the marshmallow. Yeah, exactly. They roasted his marshmallow. <laughs> you heard it here first, people. What happens? Uh, we'll figure out some other place that we want to talk about next time. But until then, we will see you next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday. And remember, uh, new sponsor, Grind. Hit the grind.com, Facebook. We got Roots and Bulb, Facebook, Insta. Everywhere. And you can find the Brackish podcast on Google, on Spotify, Apple Music, all of them. 
Yeah, all I've never had to say this part. Wherever you find your podcast. Wherever you find your podcast. Radio.com. Yeah. You already found us, so you know where to find us again. Very true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See you next Tuesday. Bye. <laughs> Bye.